G'day humans, welcome to the safe space with Dangerous Ideas. Dangerous idea number one, uh, the world is uh, catching on fire and is becoming increasingly chaotic, uh, expensive to manage and uh, traumatising uh, and destabilised because of uh, climate chaos. Um, dangerous idea number two, you don't need to feel depressed or pessimistic about that and the solution might be a lot simpler than we've been led to believe. Imagine having a conversation like the one I just had with one of the experts on climate chaos and coming out of that conversation feeling awakened, enlivened, reinvigorated, optimistic, passionate, hopeful, instead of depressed, like you've got a big grey cloud of bushfires and drought and floods and hurricanes hanging over your head. Uh, this is a terribly exciting conversation with a terribly exciting individual, Saul Griffith, PhD, an Australian engineer and inventor. He has spent a lot of time in the States. He's worked with NASA on research projects. He's uh, worked at the Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, he's worked at the National Science Foundation in America. He's worked at US Special Operations Command. Um, he was awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant in 2007. And most recently, he's been in the United States actually helping Congress and the Biden administration write the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the electricity and energy and regulatory and climate provisions therein. Um, I'm not going to give you a lot of a pre preview about this. Suffice it to say that stick with this conversation because it gets quite inspiring, I think. This is a vision of the future uh, that is that is worth seizing. And if we can just take Saul's vision and articulate that to our elected representatives and our business leaders, uh, you know, we could be getting somewhere. It's already having an, an impact. His book, uh, The Big Switch, uh, Australia's Electric Future, has on its cover uh, a blurb from Australia's probably most important and visionary entrepreneur, Mike Cannon-Brooks, and, the, and Mike Cannon-Brooks writes, about fucking time we have an actual plan written down that can be executed and financed. In a decarbonized world, Australia is a winner. The opportunity now is ours for the taking. And what applies to Australia applies largely to America, if you're listening to this in the United States. Saul's other book is called Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future. His vision, uh, not to sort of bury the lead here, is uh, basically that we need to rewire America and Australia by electrifying everything, electrifying everything in your home. And the ramifications of that are unimaginable, but you will have been able to imagine them after you listen to this impending conversation. Rewiringamerica.org is his American rewiring site. Rewiringaustralia.org is his Australian site. Electrifying our cars and our homes is the concrete action that Australians can make this decade that will save us money and save our kids' future. To find out why, listen on and enjoy the one and only Saul Griffin. Complicated is a good answer as well to how you how are you, but I feel it's less I feel it's less true now than it has been for a few years. No, I'm needed in the sense that like you're middle age, so you've got parents and you've got children and both of them are complicated and then That's you've got yeah. mortgages and Vladimir Putin so you've got that yeah. complicated and you may not have COVID but you're honestly only a few days from another bout of diarrhea or something because you've got children. It's true. Yeah, it's all true. 
It's all true. Although I'm choosing to be a glass half full guy at this particular point, given what we've gone through over the past couple of years when things were truly complicated in the worst possible meaning of that of that word. Now they're right. just ah, complicated. They're not complicated. It's true. Donald Trump might not even win. He might not win. Uh, you know, COVID is uh, is over. The diarrhea is here. It's it's fine. It's manageable. Um, let's start with. Uh, I just want to get your brain about. I'm excited to talk about things that will make me feel good instead of things that will make me feel terrible about the prospect of our uh, climate. But let's just start with the terrible, because there are various ranges of people's visions about what the 21st century is going to look like in terms of the climate. Uh, you know, some people are pessimistic to the extent that they think that this is a civilization destroying crisis and then others are optimistic in the sense that they think look it's bad but technology is gonna lead us out of it and we'll probably be able to use some harebrained geoengineering schemes that have yet to be dreamt up to mitigate the worst effects of climate chaos and then there's people in who sort of float around bob around in the middle i'd probably put myself in that camp going i don't really know what it's going to be but I, at the very least it's going to be Enormously expensive and very disruptive and incredibly destabilizing and just really irritating and a total own goal as to why we put ourselves through the worst of this and failed to head it off at the pass. What's your vision of the inevitable future if we don't act fast? So how do I feel about the climate outcome if we don't do anything? If we don't do anything, it's going to be pretty bad i think this is an awkward question and i get frustrated for example there are people who seem to think that three to eight feet or you know one to three meters of sea level rise this century will be manageable and i think it will be very difficult to deal with the amount of refugees that that moves and that will be hugely destabilizing uh, personally, I worry about the health of all of our natural ecosystems, which are degrading extremely fast. And I'm sort of worried about what we lose, uh, as a species when we lose all of the other species. Is that the same problem, Saul, as the climate problem, or is that a related set of problems to do with overfishing and habitat loss and so on? The climate stressor on top of all of the other problems is a huge problem, but it does couple with all of those other human systems problems. Yeah. But I, I worry, you know, we're losing the pollinators so quickly that that effect on agriculture is going to be painful. Um, we don't really know what happens to these complex ecosystems when we lose the supporting species. And so I'm, I'm concerned about the risk. Right. Are we, losing, are we losing those supporting species? I, you mean like bees and so on? Is that a climate? Like, no, I'm, I mean, I mean like we're losing krill at one end of the spectrum. We're losing bees in different ecosystems. We're losing lots of birds. We're losing some apex predators. And I just worry about the feedback loops that has on those ecosystems. And, you know, it'll make the world less beautiful. That's one reason to worry about it, but it will make the support systems for agriculture and for fishing, et cetera, also 
less good and they're all under extreme climate change pressure as well as all of the other pressures that we're putting on. Right, I see. Yeah. So anyway, I worry about the sea level rise will be more difficult than people think and the fragility of agriculture is going to be more difficult than people think. I mean, Australia's agricultural productivity is down 20% or something over the last couple of decades um, as an example. So I I don't believe the story that the increase in productivity in in Russia and Canada will compensate for the decreases everywhere else. Right. And the decreases everywhere else are, at least in the case of Australia, things like floods and bushfires and droughts. Floods, bushfires, droughts, that's right. Yeah. And how does the... How does the increase in water level in practice uh, have a devastating impact on people's lives? Because I, I can imagine people thinking, well, okay, if you live by the beach, that's bad. You're probably going to have to push your house back a few meters. But a meter, you know, most of us don't live within uh, one meter's sea level rise of the ocean. So is it is it that storms become worse and that when you get, uh, you know, flooding and when you get the sea pushing in and eating at the coastline those extreme events become worse because the water is raised or are we talking about places that are very very close to water level like the netherlands and the nile and bangladesh and places like that how does that play out well it's it's both problems you know there are places like florida and louisiana and bangladesh where everyone lives and then within a meter and there's places like the netherlands where everyone's pretty much already living under sea level. Um, now I worry about our capacity to maintain, and you know, even New York city has this problem. I worry about our capacity to maintain robust dams and levees to try and keep these things at bay and the expense of doing so. And yeah, we will have to do a retreat and that's going to be a lot of money that has to be flush down the toilet and a lot of people are going to have to be moved and people don't like change. People don't like moving people. And we've seen the pressures of refugees everywhere, but this will be something like one of those slow moving century long refugee crisis. Mm. I don't, I don't think it will be easy to manage as for example, uh, one of the New York times columnists just came out and said, oh, you know, it'll be fine. I think it'll be harder than that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. That gives me a good picture. And then strangely, when I look at your work, you seem to be quite chipper uh, in the sense that when I think about climate, I just feel this overwhelming sense of sort of gray mush descending upon me where I'm like, oh God, this is going to be so fucking hard. And the politics of it are difficult and the science of it is difficult. And I don't really know where to start because I don't really think that it's going to be resolved through individual action and, you know, individuals choosing to fly less or something. So I just feel like I'm trussed up like a Thanksgiving turkey bound up in a billion different strands of string, not knowing where to turn. And then I look at your book and it's subtitled An Optimist's Playbook for Our Clean Energy Future. Why? Um, I actually fought, fought the publisher a little bit for a little while about using the word optimist. I'm like, how did you read this book and decide that you want to put it? You know, as the author, you get to decide everything except what's on the cover. Mm. Um, it's clever. Look, the publisher was clever. 
I think it was the right thing to go with. And I, and I've, I've decided to own optimism. Yeah. Do it. And I, um, I am optimistic that we can very quickly hit the targets we need to hit. And I reject the notion that this will be expensive. It could in fact be very cheap. And I think I can narrate a story of how we mostly succeed a climate, mostly through mitigation, mostly through electrification, and we can do it on time and to schedule. And I can support that with some optimistic data. Um, but to just intone the other pieces, I do think it will be hard, not because it's impossible or difficult, but because there are forces working against it still. And the two forces that I think are the worst, one of them you mentioned, the science is complicated. And just to tell you how I think it's complicated, this might be an odd analogy, but it was at the 150th anniversary of the publishing, publishing of the origin of the species, you could sort of look around the world and estimate that less than half of the world believed in evolution. Right. By its various religious and cultural affiliations. And evolutionary theory is probably it's complicated science, but it's a little less complicated than climate science. So I kind of feel like we're going to have to solve this probably without strong quorum or belief that it's a real thing. Oh, really? Yeah. I think if, you know, Australia, you've probably got a majority in the U S I think it's marginal. Um, and in, you know, Africa, India, you know, I, I know. Other other places, I think there's a lot, a great deal of just ignorance. Yeah, I mean, if it's any consolation, this being the only field of the climate crisis that I have some expertise in, being the being sort of public opinion and the interaction between the populace and the demos and their political leaders on this issue, I'm more optimistic than that. I mean, firstly, I think something like a natural selection is is abstract and complicated in a way that is is totally removed from people's everyday lives because most of us aren't breeding pea pods in our backyard to try to determine their genetic, uh, you know, offspring. With this, every time there's a more intense drought and a more intense flood and a more intense hurricane, like the link can be made and the suspicion or a heat wave or whatever, and the suspicion grows in the eyes of the population, I think that, that that something wacky is going on. There are just too many irregularities and anomalies for people to ignore it anymore. And with the exception of the weirdness of the way the American right has dealt with this, I think broadly speaking in Western liberal democracies, you've got majorities on board now. So I think the, the opportunity is there if you can get the the business and political systems in line with populations. And, and, I mean, there you, and, and here you've proven just how optimistic I am because I was even able to take you who didn't want to be optimistic at the top <laughs> of the call. And I've turned you into an optimist because... Well, I don't because you were initially... <laughs> uh, the only uh, metric on which I am optimistic, which is that I think there's been a sea change in the past 10, 15 years in, in the public's attitude towards this. I mean, even just in polling, if you look at... You, know, you go back to like the Kevin Rudd election in Australia and you ask voters what their most important issues are. And the environment and climate is, you know, four or five, maybe six, just that recently. You're talking about 15 years ago. Now it's number one. All right. So I'm optimistic and, and it is changing there. And you may have some optimism on my next point. But there are still huge forces 
of inertia, people's general reluctance to accept or think, um, embrace change, uh, and then the resistance of the existing stakeholders, you know, namely the, the state capture that I still think we have around the world by oil, gas, coal. Right. Um, so, you know, it is a fight all the way to the finish, even though you might say we've got a majority in Western liberal democracies who now believe, um, I don't think we have a majority that are like, then take that to, I have to act immediately in my own life. No, that's true. But then that, I think the part of the explanation for that is the sense of overwhelm and I have it as well. I'm not going to not take international flights because there's a collective action problem to some extent. So let me, let me, let's step into the optimism now. So I've just, we've set the table, um, with a, with a bunch of turds and and shit with, with, with rusty dinnerware and wooden plates. Yeah. Um, but now let's show the banquet. Um, and I'm going to introduce why I think there's reason for optimism with, with kind of why we've been thinking about this the wrong way for a long time structurally and how thinking about a new way changes a lot of priors. So the majority of climate change is caused by our energy systems. And the first time we had an energy crisis was in the 1970s and 73 Arab oil embargo that landed on Nixon's desk. And there was no department of energy. In fact, there was no EPA environmental protection agency. There was no energy information administration. All of those bureaucracies were created in a hurry by Nixon and forward after him and then sort of finished the job with Carter to understand and respond to, um, the, that the crisis of that energy crisis, it was a shortage supply shortage problem because 15% of America's energy was coming from foreign oil. When they assembled some boffins to look at that, and these are the boffins who created the early department of energy. They said, well, the answer to this energy crisis is efficiency. If we made every American car 15% more efficient, if we made every American house, meaning the furnaces and the water heaters 15% more efficient, then we won't need all of that foreign oil. And so that gave us literally energy policy, which was the cafe fuel standards, corporate average fuel economy standards, which drove the efficiency of cars up in the U S and it gave us energy star appliances and more efficient appliances. But because it was, it sort of latched into the burgeoning environmentalist movement, the modern one, which was sort of born Earth Day 1970, they needed a mission and an answer to all of the ecological environmental crises. And they embraced this efficiency mindset. And that efficiency mindset was you know, smaller cars, colder homes, uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. And it was a mantra that was kept easily lampooned by the right as anti-capitalist because it kept saying less of everything, smaller everything. And I think is a large piece of the origin of the culture war. You can then make the observation that you can't efficiency your way to zero emissions. That's just not possible. You, you, you can't. You can't get the 700 mile per gallon 
diesel car. Um, and even if you do, it's still using a gallon to go 700 miles. So we've been throwing this efficiency at um, climate forever, including in the negotiations of the Inflation Reduction Act. There were lots of people still arguing that if you're going to give rebates and subsidies and market incentives to electric appliances powered by renewables, you needed to also give them to slightly more efficient natural gas water heaters. So that fight is still ongoing. Mm. But if you step back and you look at the whole energy economy and all the flows from where we get energy from to how we use it and all the, the waste um, that happens when you burn fossil fuels, because when you burn gasoline or petrol in a car, only about 20% of it is converted into forward motion. When you burn coal in a power plant, only about 30 or 35% is converted into electricity. Um, the current energy economy is hugely inefficient. Only, you know, only around 40% of the energy you put in actually gets converted into the things that humans like doing. If you then reimagine every single thing that humans like doing, driving and heating their homes and, um, et cetera, and you just go through the thought experiment, what happens when we electrify all of those machines and um, and we power them all with wind and solar and nuclear and renewables. Um, it turns out that's the efficiency we were always looking for. You, you could run the entire, you know, the numbers are roughly the same for Australia or America. You could run the entire economy on 40% of the energy we do today without shrinking the cars, without shrinking the homes, without turning the thermostat down. Purely because if you do it all electrically, the machines, the electric machines are just that much more efficient in converting primary energy into the things that humans like doing. Wait, where's that measurement happening between the electricity coming down a pipe and my device using that? No, it's, 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 it's looking at the whole economy, right? So Because doesn't that take on how you're generating the electricity? I mean, if I was using a coal... Well, you, 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 heard, you, yeah, you heard me say that you you have to electrify everything and power it with renewables or nuclear. If right. you do that, if you do that, you only need 40 or 45% of the energy we use today without shrinking things, without changing our lifestyle. And you can go through every single thing that we do and then you wind up, you know, most of it's easy because it's electrifying vehicles. Like, you know, in fact, I can actually tell you this story in terms of machines and you've got an American audience and an Australian audience. I'll try and bridge both worlds. In America, there's about 1 billion machines on the demand side that burn fossil fuels. That's 280 million cars. It's 110 million homes with 70 million gas cooking situations, 80 or 90 million gas water heaters and 60 odd million gas base heaters and um, you know, golf carts and chainsaws and aircraft, you can go down the list. Um, and we now pretty much have a substitute for every one of those machines that can be electric, can be powered by renewables and can be zero emission. So, well, not, air um, sorry, what was that? <laughs> Only not aircraft. Only not aircraft. But then you get the aircraft. The aircraft is about 2% of global energy use 
uh, about half of that is short hop trips under 500 miles. Honestly, we could do with electric aircraft technology that's available today. Yeah. Um, and you can also close the carbon loop on, on some of these things by, you know, I've, I've spoken to some of the scientists who are working with algae fuels and things like that, where they're, yeah. hoping to, you know, hoping to still be able to use fossil fuels for aviation, but the fossil fuels would be generated by uh, a closed carbon loop where they're, they're ultimately absorbing carbon in the process of manufacturing the fuel. Um, yeah, they're not even they're not even fossil fuels at that point. They're just biofuels. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. certainly fossils. Yeah, you know, there's um, a wonderful. So, so there's enough biofuels in the world potentially and pretty easily just using agricultural waste, forestry waste, and some algae to do all of those things that you think are hard, like air travel and. So I still uh, just clarify the the um, the energy saving for me, the efficiency. I still don't understand it. So I've got a, you know, I need to turn on my uh, heater for an hour uh, at a particular temperature that let's, let's use this fixed demand that I have for a certain amount of electricity. Uh, the, are you saying that the, the total amount of energy that the wind is pushing through the turbines at the other end that's generating uh, the electricity, that a greater proportion of that is captured than a coal-fired power station captures of the energy that is in coal? And isn't that kind of a, an arbitrary measurement? Because like, well, these measurements aren't arbitrary and these measurements were established as methodologies by the Energy Information Administration in the late seventies and early eighties, when we were first trying to grapple with an energy economy. And we defined primary energy in various different ways for various different energy sources. And some of it was even silly. So primary energy is easy with coal, it's tons of coal. It's barrels of oil, it's um, cubic feet or cubic meters of natural gas. It became a bit trickier. What is the primary energy for wind or solar or hydroelectricity uh, or even nuclear? They didn't even use a sensible number for nuclear because there's an enormous amount of energy in uranium and we only mm. get a tiny amount out when we, of that, when we do traditional nuclear fission and it would have made nuclear energy look so inefficient that you couldn't even draw on it on the same graph. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, so that's what the main by arbitrary, like there's, there's it, it is arbitrary, but I'm, but I'm still, I'm, I'm, but, but my point is not arbitrary and I'm going to, so, but I'm going to try and help you understand that you do have to have an opinion upon these decisions. Okay. So. With nuclear power, they decided to just use the efficiency of the steam engine at the end of the cycle that converts the heat into electricity. And so actually nuclear looks like it's about uh, 38 or 40% efficient or something um, by that measure of primary energy. For hydroelectricity, they did something even more absurd. They said, well, we should define the primary energy as the amount of coal or gas we'd have to put on to create the electricity that wouldn't be generated by hydro if there was a drought. So in fact, the way that you decide the primary energy of, of hydroelectricity still today under the Energy Information Administration's methodology is you'd say, well, this dam produces two gigawatts of electricity all year, but if we turn it off and had to use coal, that would only be, um, it, it, it would have, it would be three times more than that. So we actually over-report the amount of energy that the U.S. uses because of that methodology by a few percent. Amazing. 
Um, but with wind, you know, there's a huge amount of it, A, and we can extract it up to the bets limit. So you can only extract about 57% of the energy in a moving column of wind. That's just the laws of physics say you can't do anymore. We can already extract 90 or 95% of that bets limit, which is pretty extraordinary. And the way we've defined primary energy for wind is really just the, what is produced from the turbine. Um, and with solar, you know, it's only 20 or 21 or 22% efficient, but it's not really fair or useful to say that we're losing 80% of it because it's falling on the rooftop anyway. It's falling on the ground anyway. That's sort of what I mean. I, that's why I'm finding it hard to get my head around. Like, oh, if, I bet, I, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm glad I've got you to wear to here. Yes. So the final point is right. If I'm using coal to run your television, I need three units of coal compared to one unit of wind energy. When people have imagined these solutions, they haven't really taken into account all of these primary energies. And what they particularly haven't taken into account is the efficiency of the electric machinery that you're using in your house. For example, the electric car is three or four times less energy per kilometer than using gasoline to do the same thing if okay. it's powered by wind or solar. Yep. Your electric heat pump or mini split air conditioning or heating system uses a quarter of the energy or a third of the energy of natural gas to do the same amount of heating inside your house. So the efficiency we're always looking for is just electrification. So that's a useful thing because it basically says that there's only one real pathway to zeroing in the great majority of emissions and that's by electrifying the end use machines and by powering it with nuclear wind or solar because all of those can in theory be zero emissions to stop having these other conversations about slightly more efficient cars and slightly more efficient gas things because we need to overhaul the regulations and design the regulations and policy settings for the future around what gets to zero got it okay well i want to get to that but just to put a button on this efficiency thing just to Tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. There are two sides to this coin. One side is on the consumption side. If I convert my car from being powered by fossil fuels to being powered by electricity, then it just it simply requires less energy to do the same stuff. Uh, so that's one bonus for electrifying things. This is that's on the kind of the most immediate, proximate, like place to my actual use of the energy. I think and I can sum. I think I can summarize all of our confusion here really quickly. We've had 50 years of environmental orthodoxy that says if we all suffer together and we have smaller, colder houses and smaller, slower cars, and we sacrifice a little bit more, we'll be slightly less fucked. Whereas you can now say if we electrify all the machines and we go all in on powering it with renewables and perhaps with nuclear, we can have everything we have, except it'll be cleaner, it'll be faster, and our lives will be more comfortable. Yeah. No, that's I, a very, that's a very. I just also want to, under, I understand that that's what you're saying, but I also want to understand yeah. the how behind it. So let me just finish my, uh, my ramble. So there's the, it's more efficient at the, at the use end, but then at the production end, if I need 15 yeah. units of electricity coming down a cable, the efficiency is presumably the same regardless of how that was created once it's in the cable. But you're saying that to get it into the cable in the first place, to actually generate the electricity, there are more and less efficient ways of generating it. 
where I get confused and say, yeah, but that's kind of academic is simply on say on the point that if we're talking about a resource that we're almost infinite, like wind, then it doesn't really matter if we're only, if we're capturing it inefficiently, if it's essentially free. And if there's another resource that there's not very much of, let's fast forward 50 years and say that there isn't very much oil anymore and oil costs an absolute fortune a barrel and it's very, very hard to get, then it can be as efficient as you want it to be. But ultimately you have to pour a lot of resources into getting it and then using it. So wouldn't you rather a resource that is extremely plentiful and easy to get, even if it were inefficient to one that is highly efficient, but scarce? See, you're, you're being entirely too reasonable and, and everything you said is exactly obvious, but the problem is, and it isn't exactly academic while you allow this, the way we structured the thinking, the way we structure the way we make energy policy based around the way we define primary energy and we measure these efficiencies that enables very powerful lobbies to say, Hey, we made our coal slightly more efficient. Oh, we're going to do clean coal now. That's even more efficient again, and maybe a bit cleaner. And then we divert precious resources to things that are a distraction. So you've already made the right conclusion. Let's just play the end game. And I was trying to encourage everyone, let's just play the end game. And then with observation that, oh, this electrification of everything powered by renewables end game turns out also is so much more efficient than we can actually kind of have the Western lifestyles that we criticized mm. all these years. And it can work out. It numerically can work out. So we don't have to sell less colder, slower suffering anymore as, as a movement trying to solve climate change. We can sell bright, shiny, better, faster, cleaner, healthier, um, higher air quality. Mm. And also cheaper because um, you know, and I think that maybe the best example is Australian rooftop solar, which financed on your roof now produces electricity at three or four cents per yeah. kilowatt hour. Um, coal plants can produce electricity at two cents a kilowatt hour, but they have to get transmitted over huge distances. They have to go through a distribution network, which costs a bunch of money, et cetera, et cetera. It, it ends up being. 15, 20, 30 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, the more energy we can produce locally with things like that solar right there on your rooftop, um, the energy is just going to be that much cheaper than we've ever had before. Australian rooftop solar is, it is true to say, is the cheapest form of retail energy ever, ever delivered to a consumer or customer in the world. Mm. And so if you're using, and here's the easy example, if you're using petrol at two twenty dollars a liter for the Americans, that's gasoline at five dollars a gallon. Uh, and to, to run an average sized American Australian car, it's costing you twenty to twenty five cents per kilometer, or you know fifteen cents, twenty cents a mile. If you're using Australian rooftop solar energy to power an electric car, it's costing you one cent per kilometer, more than ten times less. Right. And in the system, isn't there a, I mean, I, I'm perhaps laboring under a, an old fashioned assumption 
that gas is efficient in the home. So talking about, you know, you see, this is why I have, this is why I have to do that long intro about all the efficiency shit being bullshit. Stove tops and stuff like that. So, so speak to me about, about that. Um, so starting in the seventies, we had, you know, we discovered gas in the North sea. We discovered it in Australia and Bass Strait and we quickly decided that it was going to be, it was marketed to us as the clean, efficient blue flame. And yes, using gas to heat your home is more efficient than coal or coal fired electricity running an electric machine, but it's far less efficient than using a modern heat pump. So with a modern heat pump, you can use one unit of electricity to create three or four units of heat. And um, heat pumps are basically for heat. I mean, as the name suggests, they're for heating water and also air, right? You can do heat pump. Heat, heating water and air. In fact, your air conditioner, everyone's air conditioner is a heat pump. And some of those are reversible, reverse cycle, which means they can, you can turn the electricity into cold air in the summer and run it reverse in the winter and it converts cold air into warm air. Yeah. The additional electricity. And now a lot of people are realizing that they can actually save money on their bills by also converting their gas hot water systems to heat pump water heaters, which are more efficient than old fashioned electric heaters, which were less yeah. gas. And here's, here's the optimism thing. And, you know, we, we did this study through rewiring America in the United States and we did it in Australia through rewiring Australia, but you can study total cost of energy use in the home, which is about $4,000 a year US in the US, which includes their gasoline, their electricity and their natural gas. In Australia, it's five, well, it was about $5,000 a year, but with the new Putin prices and pandemic prices, it's about $7,000 a year. But if you electrified the 1.8 cars in the driveway, if you electrified all the heating systems in the home, the kitchen, the water heater, the space heater, uh, and you were running that on a mix of half rooftop solar and half off the grid, um, you'd be paying about $2,000 a year for your energy. So saving, you know, three or $4,000 a year in Australia, wow. saving, saving about two and a half thousand. Yeah. Saving about two and a half thousand dollars a year in the U S and you, you know, that would be a saving of $30 billion a year in the Australian economy, about $300 billion a year in the American economy. And that's the future that we can easily make happen by 2030. And the largest barriers to it are actually regulatory and policy barriers because we've had a hundred years of the fossil lobbies writing the legislation for themselves. And now we've got to kind of undo the building codes. We've got to undo the rules of the, how electricity flows on the electricity networks. Um, we've got to get into the tax codes in these countries where there's still huge tax incentives to buy fossil fuel vehicles, for example, and we've got to reorient all of those pieces of policy and regulation to make this new electric, clean, cheaper future cheaper. And what's the low hanging fruit there, Sol? If you were given one day as emperor of Australia or emperor of America or emperor of the world, and uh, you're able to wave a magic wand and say, all right, like here are five big policy changes, nothing to do with human behavior, but just in terms of regulation and tax and stuff like that, this is what we need to change. What specifically are those? Well, I did just go go and do this in the U.S. and spent a large part of my last three years helping a dedicated, motivated group of people write the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and it was a spending bill, so it couldn't write new legislation. It 
couldn't regulate. It could just provide carrots or incentives in the marketplace. Um, in a perfect world, you'd say you'd have a phase out of fossil fuel vehicles by a known date. You'd have a phase out of natural gas appliances by a known date. You'd give everyone market certainty. You know that you can't sell a petrol or, or gasoline vehicle after 2030. You can't put a natural gas appliance in a home after 2025. That would have been perfect low hanging fruit. Um, not being able to do that, the best thing that you can do is, okay, make sure that there are no tax incentives indirect or otherwise to buy petrol vehicles. Um, and what sure are those tax incentives? Because I think most people will have heard about uh, tax incentives that you can get in some jurisdictions for electric cars. You know, the French are doing well on that. Or there are some states and territories in Australia where you get some kind of a rebate or you don't have to pay your you know, stamp duty or whatever it might be on an electric car. So most people think that the policy that levers are currently skewed towards electric and away from fossil fuels where you have to pay tax on petrol uh, and so on and so forth. We, we still have huge um, fuel tax rate, fossil fuel, you know, oil and petrol tax rebates in the US and in Australia for commercial vehicles, for example, for some and a lot of Australians you know, put, slap it, slap a sticker on the side of their car, call the commercial vehicle, and then they qualify for tax incentives on that fuel. Um, we, we have still huge amounts of the incentives on the fossil fuel side of the equation still far outweigh the incentives on the electric and clean side of the equation. But wait, the, the commercial vehicle tax benefits, those apply to electric vehicles or fossil fuel vehicles, right? Uh, they're only starting to apply to electric, but you'd, you'd like to phase them out for fossil vehicles because you've got to phase out fossil. Right. I see. I see. You, uh, you can't, you, you've got to, like, we are still advantaging the incumbent by having these rebates for petrol or gasoline. You've got to save everything that we need to win. Yep. Okay. So, so you've, you've got, got hundreds, those, those things got to, calculated to favor fossil fuels, those are tax rebates because companies that are using uh, a tool in the course of making their own business are able to deduct that tool. And in this case, that tool happens to be a vehicle that they need in order to try to make their business run. So we give them a tax break on the vehicle just as we would a drill or any, any other thing that they need to run their business or a cash register or a window or something. Uh, but I right. see the point. And we now, yeah, we need to make that for the electric thing. And actually, Everyone says, oh, this is going to cost you so much. Over the lifetime of electric vehicle, we know it will save you money in the US or in Australia today on the price of oil, on the price of electricity. So, you know, the, the car that any, any electric car that is born today over its 10 or 20 year lifetime will actually save net money. Yeah. So, I mean, the, you, the, the, the caveat to that is that if you're only going to keep a car for five or six years, then the premium that you're paying for the electric one might, may not pay itself off in that period of time right but that that is exactly true for a petrol or diesel car too right you pay the most in depreciation yeah so, that's true but you have less time with the electric vehicle to for it to to pay you back by having you not pay for petrol like the five years worth of petrol may not be more than the difference between the price of a petrol car and an electric car at the moment even if the 20 years of petrol would be yeah, so it's about $2,000 a year for an average Australian car, average amount of driving in petrol. Um, so if you've got five years, that's $10,000. Uh, 
you know, minus yeah. some electricity price. So it's marginal today on a five-year timeline for an electric car. But we know that if you look at the rate of reduction in the price of the electric car, so we yeah, no, you, have to, you have to make policy for tomorrow and we're still having writing policy for yesterday. So mm-hmm. we know, like, you've got to write the policy for 2025. And in 2025, you know that the electric cars will be about the same price in the showroom as yeah, the right. petrol and diesel. And so, in terms of building, I, I, so, you, so you've got to, I just, you just have to reject all these people who want to use a today argument to fight against you because the yeah, today arguments true. aren't true because we get taking all of these new industries and new technologies to scale and their prices are falling. And what we know about fossil fuels is their prices are still increasing. One reason the Inflation Reduction Act is called the Inflation Reduction Act is like, think about this. If you can actually draw a chart, super elegant. In 1990, average Australian household was spending about $2,500 a year on all of its energy, and it's now spending five and a half thousand or 6000 and it's just going up and up and up, and it's actually getting more volatile. And we know that because it's based on fossil fuels, it's going to continue going up into the future. If you um, finance that house to get solar today, to buy electric vehicles, to electrify all its heating systems, because you're not buying fuels in the future, you're just, you've bought the finance. It's a fixed cost of energy for that household 20 years into the future. So mm. instead of going up and to the right, the graph of energy cost for that house in the future now goes dead straight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm leery, I'm leery about justifying any of this on the basis of uh, assumptions about what fossil fuel prices are going to do, because I, I think it's, even if you're right, there, would, there are good reasons for doing this, even if fossil fuels were to become cheap. And so we should ensure, ensure, ensure ourselves well, against the well, this, I think I, I think you've just stated the, the bleedingly fucking obvious, excuse my French, but this is something that should make us all angry. We... The climate scientists did a bang-up job and they knew what was up in the 70s or 80s. And instead of then handing the job to engineers who would use the reasonable logic that you just used, like, well, you have to do this anyway, so just fix it. We handed it to economists and said, oh, see if you can pull some economic levers. And so that's why we're still fighting all of these fights on with economic arguments as opposed to, no, you just have to fix this. Yeah, and the longer you wait, the harder it gets to fix and the more expensive it gets to fix and the more inconvenient everything becomes in the meantime, the more chaotic it becomes. Yeah, so, it's hard yeah. Yeah. so um, anyway, we, the optimism part of me is like, we're now at a point where, and you know, it speaks also to the lowest hanging fruit, green hydrogen is not a thing yet. It may never become a thing. Um, we don't know yet how to do modern agriculture without emissions. We don't know how to do cement yet. We don't know how to do green steel yet. Um, so in terms of, but we know that we need to get early emissions reductions are vital. And the sooner you do them, it buys you more time to develop the solutions for those things we don't know how to do yet. What does that mean that we know? What do we know how to do today? We know how to do wind and solar. We know how to electrify our vehicles and electrify our homes and electrify our small businesses. That in the U.S. is about 70% of emissions. So mm-hmm. just go at it. Yeah. Focus on what we know and what's easy. And right. And, of- and unfortunately, there's still huge lobby groups spending huge amounts of money perverting policy and regulatory, and this is even more true in Australia and the U.S., to try and like not emphasize those things we can do now because they're, they, they would like the, the incentives to go to things that we don't even know how to do yet. 
you know, the gas you industry just, is all over hydrogen, for example. Like yeah. Promoting it as can, a you, can you just give us some more examples of, of regulatory stuff? Because I, I, I think I need some flesh on the bones to understand to understand it. So you've mentioned, for example, car, you know, subsidies for... for well, here's, um, here's a story for your American audience. Yeah. Um, rooftop solar in Australia installs on your roof for less than one US dollar a watt with no subsidies. After subsidies is about 60 US cents a watt. In the United States, solar on the rooftop costs on average about $3 a watt to install, more than three times as much. That's the difference. That's the reason why in Australia, rooftop solar is three, four or five cents kilowatt hour. And in the US, rooftop solar is 20 cents or more per kilowatt hour. And in the US, rooftop solar is more expensive than electricity from the grid. In Australia, it's far less than half the price. The difference is the regulatory and the policy environment. Um, part of that is certification and training. So Australia certified and trained the solar installer network so they could fulfill some of the job of permitting and inspection as well as installing and be guaranteed to do a good job so that they didn't have to stack in extra overhead. Um, there's building code differences between Australia and the US that lead to these differences. So, you know, if you could have a huge victory in the US, it would be just doing what Australia did to make rooftop solar so cheap. In, the, in Australia, we've got 30% of households with rooftop solar. In Australia, in the US, it's less than 2%. And it's because in the US, it's more expensive than the grid. And that's a regulatory and policy difference. And the regulations and policies are basically you need to pay for another person to come in and inspect that the solar panels were installed correctly and safely in America? In, and, in, in, in Australia, you can get a permit in one day online in the u.s it's a three to four month process through people and councils and ahjs which is a thing called authorities having jurisdiction um so it's circuitous it takes a long time right and and people get cold feet they're like oh this is never going to happen so and and when you say building codes is this because neighbors aren't going to like the look of your solar panels on your roof it can be building codes to determine how close the solar panels can go to the edge of the roof, or it can be neighborhood codes that say, we don't want them on the roof at all because they should be red terracotta so that your cookie cutter house can look the same as my cookie cutter house. It is a, a whole suite of regulations. Like you've literally, you know, we've had a hundred years to write all these regs and these technologies are only a few years old. So like they fly in the face of a lot of hundred year old regs. I mean, you're making me feel more sympathetic to the libertarian argument that we've just got too many bloody laws and we should get rid of all of them and start from the beginning and start writing the ones that we actually want. You know, my colleagues and I were testifying at the US Senate last year and Ted Cruz came to shout at us and spit venom in our face and tell us how we were all wrong because we were basically showing how electrification of American homes would save American homes money. And he said, oh, this is all crap and... All you need to do is deregulation and allow uh, ingenuity to fix this. And it was like, you know, I'm about to agree violently with Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's actually a really important point. Like there is a there's, there's ample opportunity to bridge some of these ideological divides here. Mm. We want less regulation, not more. We want less rules. We want more autonomy for the homeowner. We want that's the blunt, that's the, that's, that's the blunt Fox news message. The other one is like, look, we've got state, state captured by the fossil companies. Let's go in and fix it. 
and yeah. fix the rest. Yeah, you know what? I mean, even even I, <clears throat> broadly on the uh, on the progressive side of politics, I would say find more find something more instinctively appealing about the the can doism of fighting back against sclerotic bureaucracies who are nanny stating us up the wazoo and finger wagging us about what I can and can't put on my roof and overcharging me for this and that and like trying to micromanage my life. I'd rather sweep that away than be like, mm, I'm going to get together and I'm going to stand up against big fossil, big oil uh, who have got a regular right. system in place. And um, it's actually yeah, it's, it's about, you know, you can totally make it. It's about freedom. It's about my right to generate. It's about my right to sell my neighbor electricity without some regulatory body getting in the middle of it. Mm. Um, and absolutely, that's a that's a worthy fight, and it also happens to be true and and be a part, you know, where a lot of these problems are. Um, so you just mentioned, you just said something revealing: sell my neighbour electricity. Uh, so once we've got, once we're all like, let's assume that we're all electrified, then it becomes not just an equation of me not me having to take less power from the grid because I'm generating some and all my appliances are efficient and my car and whatnot. It also becomes what a smart grid where I'm connected back into the system, selling electricity back to the grid and connected to my neighbors who, and we're able to sell each other electricity when I'm away, the electricity that my solar roof is generating should be able to power my neighbor and they can somehow pay me. How will that all work? Well, right now that doesn't work. <laughs> no, that's correct. <laughs> so right now the incentives and rules in the system are incentivizing you to go completely off grid. If you've got a big roof and you live in the suburbs and you can put in a ton of solar cells and have a ton of batteries and do it all yourself, that's what you're incentivized to do. But you've got to remember that not everyone has a big roof and not everyone wants to do all of those things. So I'm not arguing that we all go and island ourselves and become our own little energy dictatorships. Like we still, there's huge benefits from us all being connected to each other and connected to a larger energy system. That gives us robustness and it gives us reliability um but the rules of the road today don't really treat the solar on your roof uh, the same as they treat a gas-fired or coal-fired generator so you can't sell your electricity on your roof to your neighbor 40 feet away is that a technical impediment or a legal impediment no that's a legal and regulatory impediment and as we now know, even if fusion energy existed tomorrow, fusion energy for free in the US, it would cost eight cents to get it to the average house. In Australia, it would cost about 15 cents to get it to the average house. Um, that's because the transmission and distribution networks cost money. So right. it's a simple, obvious statement that the cheapest energy system will maximize the amount of electricity generated on your roof and in your local community. Um, you'll still want some of that other free fusion and, and low cost wind energy coming over the grid, um, to help balance it all out, but maximizing on your roof will be the lowest cost system. But if we, we, we then need to write the rules that support you and motivate you to put the maximum amount on your roof. And right now the rules only support you basically selling the electricity to yourself. So you design your system so you're not over-investing in your solar to be a fairly small solar system and a fairly small battery. Um, 
because you can't easily share it and sell that service back. Not at, not at a price that makes it worthwhile. And technically speaking, Sol, would there be an easy way for me to sell my electricity to my neighbor without having to install new wires or would, are you envisaging new networks that would be installed? We don't need new wires. Most distribution grids run at 15 to 25% capacity. Uh, we design them for peak loads. So we, you know, in Australia, most of our electricity grids are designed for the peak summer air conditioning load, for example, just assuming, which assumes that at 6 p.m. everyone has their air conditioner running full blast. Mm. So because of that, there's a lot of headroom or a lot of extra room on the wires to put a lot more electricity. If you electrify all the cars, electrify all the things in the houses, you're going to need about 250% of the electricity delivered to the home. So we're going to need that extra headroom to put that electricity there. But we also know that nearly all of that new electricity can be generated on the rooftops and in the communities. Um, so then we have to travel as far and fewer times over those wires. And then we know right. there's going to be a huge number of batteries there, right? The battery in a modern electric car could run a modern home for three or four days. So if you've got two of those cars sitting in the driveway, there's plenty of capacity to use a little battery to run for a you know, few hours here and there. Um, and uh, no, on sharing it with my neighbours, forgive my engineering ignorance, but uh, if I've got uh, if I've got a bunch of electricity and I'm away, I'm not using it. Either it's in my car, or it's stored in the battery in my house, or it's coming straight from my rooftop, and I want to share it with my neighbours. Then does that do those packets of electricity do those electrons actually go back into the wire on the street and move over to my neighbour's place and then go into their house? Is there a way of actually coordinating that, or are they going functionally back into the grid? My neighbour is then taking them out, and then some central authority, the utility company, the electricity company, is saying, "Ah, oh, well, Josh had this much going into the grid, but his neighbour took this much out. Therefore, we're going to give you a discount on what we normally charge you for the wires because you only." had them going over a hundred meters instead of going over the entire, uh, network, like what's actually happening. Your vision is nearly correct. So yes, it is going, you currently have a wire that comes from that pole on the street and connects up to your house. That wire mostly goes one way at the moment. You're getting electricity from the grid in the future. You'd like to be pushing it back up to the pole and then it might just be going across the street and then down another string to your neighbor. And like you said, only traveling a hundred feet or a hundred meters. Um, there are, there's no jurisdiction in the world right now that can provide for that billing mechanism, even though it's easy to measure how much electricity you put up, even though it's easy to measure how much electricity your neighbor used to put in their electric car. Um, we don't do that and we don't have a local electricity transfer tariff that treats those with preference or privilege or even equally with the electricity you buy from hmm. the grid. So in Australia, those things are controlled by Australian energy regulator and the Australian electricity market operator. There's currently 800 pages of proposed rule changes submitted every week to this governing body. Most of those rules changes are being proposed by the existing big fossil energy companies. And they're, they don't really express an interest in seeing this future play out as quickly as we need it to. And obviously at 800 pages of proposed changes a week, this is not a bureaucratic process that's converging on the right answer very quickly. Mm. 
And what, so, so what would the right we, answer be? Like how would, presumably you have to wrestle the power over how all of this is coordinated out of the hands of existing energy companies, don't you? So does that mean some sort of smaller arrangement of, of grids, a smaller arrangement of billing? How do you envisage it? Uh, you, you need all the players that are currently there. You need the transmission companies. You need the generation companies. You need the distribution company. The distribution company is the one that owns the local poles. And then you need a retailer. That's the person who does the accounting and gives you the bill. Um, but you'd, you can now build an easy argument that we can put a lot more electricity over those distribution wires without changing the wires. Uh, yeah, we'll need to put a few batteries on that local distribution route, but that, that's not a huge expense. But why do we have to charge the same for that, that electron that's going from my roof to your car as we do for an electron that has to travel 800 kilometers over a transmission network, um, et cetera, et cetera. We, we don't have to, because we can account for those things digitally and electronically. And, but how does, does that take place at the retailers HQ in your vision of the world? Cause I can imagine the energy company, we, we, we could do a number of permutations of Joe selling to Sally and then Sally selling to, Bob. well, this is the, this is the, this is the problem is that nobody has imagined an easy way of doing that. Honestly, it should happen at, you know, in Australia, you could do it with, in a partnership between the distribution companies and the retailers and the household. In the US, it will be between the utility provider or the local um, energy co-op and the yeah. help. Yeah. Um, but we, we, we're not running those experiments fast enough. We're not looking at how that system should operate quickly enough. Um, and that is key to making, to tying this, you know, that's the rug that will tie the room together here, to right. quote the big Lebowski. And there have been some of these smart grid projects i visited one of them in in austin in texas uh a few years back where they were basically everyone in the community was uh, had an electric car and was hooked up to a smart grid and you know their appliances were all smart appliances so you'd try to turn on your washing machine at six in the evening and it'd say would you like uh us to postpone this until 2 a.m when uh you know electricity is cheaper and you'd hit okay and it'd wait uh, and the houses were connected back to the grid. Are those those experiments, as far as you're aware, do any of them involve your vision of being able to sell electricity between houses or, or are they all bi-directional between house as a node and then big electricity supplier as the, the other end of that string? Well, they, they all imagine, like, they're all really testing that technically you can ship the loads, technically there's enough storage. Because they haven't bought off the regulatory, the, the economic and regulatory rules of the wires, right? So they're testing the right thing. Right. How much of this lows can we do? And they're, they are, they're doing the technical vision for the future, but they're not doing the regulatory and the, the business model vision of the future. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Okay. So, so in, in Australia right now, you're, you're, you know, and we're limiting it. You're, you used to get a guaranteed feeding tariff for your solar. 10 or 15 cents a kilowatt hour that would improve the economics for all the solar you put on your roof. That has been whittled down to one or two or even no cents, um, effectively outlawing you selling any of your electricity back to the grid. And, no. the, you know, just because they like to resist operations, the distribution grids are like, well, we don't, you know, what I actually saw the quote yesterday 
40 zone substations. Each zone substation serves about 5,000 houses. The same is true in the US and Australia. Um, 40 of 200 of the zone substations in New South Wales were running negative flow uh, last week, meaning electricity, the amount of electricity generated under the substation in all those houses exceeded the amount of electricity being used. So it was feeding electricity back into the bigger grid. Right. Right. That's the future, right? The future is happening right now, but we aren't motive. We, we don't have enough electric vehicles deployed under all of those roofs to absorb all of that electricity. We don't have the smart grid deployed everywhere. And back to those, you know, there's a hundred, there's a billion machines in American households and a hundred million machines in Australian households that aren't currently smart enough to connect to that smart grid and don't live in a regulatory and business model environment where they are motivated to all play nice to make this zero emission future play. Yeah. And all right, let's, there are a couple of things that, that I just want to get your thoughts on. And I know we're running out of time, but um, one model that I can imagine working if we're trying to electrify everything is just to, I mean, what the one thing that you didn't mention about Australia's rooftop solar is that in Australia, uh, it's very easy to get the government to lend you money to to put your rooftop solar in, right? I mean, aren't these government-backed subsidized loans now? Because I was, I mean, I'm, I was just thinking about doing it on my place because I just bought my first home and I was looking at it and, you know, you can basically amortize it over the cost of, the, of your electricity bill. So you don't even really notice that you're paying it off and it's just kind of baked into the system. There's no upfront fee for it. And before you know it, some years have gone by and you've paid off your rooftop solar. That, if you could extrapolate from that into all of the other these other things, so that your conversion from natural, I want to, I want to, I want to make an even bigger extrapolation. Right. Um, this is all just a race to prioritize capital to do the right things, right? Put the money in the right places, and like I said, you know, fossil fuel machines are cheap when you buy them, but they cost you a lot to run over their lifetime because you're always buying fuels. This one challenge of this electric future is. It's expensive machines up front that cost you nothing to run over their lifetime. So we need to figure out how to finance everyone to not only put solar on their roof, but to put the electric vehicles in their driveway, to put the electric stoves in, to put the electric water heater and everything. And to hit our climate, any climate target under two degrees, you've got to make sure that that financing is available every time anyone replaces any of their dying fossil fuel machines. Mm. Like we need a hundred percent of new cars to be electric, a hundred percent of new generation of, of any electricity to be electric. We need a hundred percent of new kitchens to be electric. We need a hundred percent of water heaters to be all electric, right? That's the rate globally you need to hit to do about 1.8 degrees. Um, so you've got to turn this financing ship around really quickly. You're making me pessimistic so, again, Saul. <laughs> I, I'll, I can finish with some optimism, but I think yeah. it's. It, I think you've got to just state the. You've got to state the bleedingly obvious, right? Because we still don't have policymakers understanding this urgency. Right. This is why, honestly, the only honest character out there is Greta. She says this is an emergency. You need to treat it like one, and she is specifically trying to say like, the free market can't do hit any climate target you want to hit anymore. Like if you just wait for, you know, a few more Elons to invent a few more things, it's too slow. 
Yeah. So we have dealt with emergencies like this before, like in the United States for World War II, Europe was losing and going to lose. And they said, America, unless you make us all of the weapons, because this is a war of machines, we're going to lose the war against Hitler. So American government partnered with American industry through something called the Defense Production Act to say anyone who can make a bullet, a gun, a jeep, an airplane, a boat, tank, will pay you cost plus 7% to go and build that thing. And American industry turned around heroically and in two years went from making a, a thousand aircraft a year to 300,000 aircraft a year. Mm. From making no tanks to thousands of tanks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need that level of emergency effort, right? That's a bit of a detour, but back to the financing. So let's talk about the, you know, it's now a problem of financing all these things. And I think it's important to understand in the 20th century, we, we thought about infrastructure as roads and bridges, right? And infrastructure was big engineering projects elsewhere and dams and stuff like the snowy project in Australia or the Hoover dam in the U S like that's infrastructure, real men build infrastructure, but the majority of our batteries in the future are going to be parked in driveways and in small businesses in our cars. The majority of generation, or at least a huge portion of it, is going to be on rooftops of, of residential homes and commercial buildings. The, the energy infrastructure of a country is going to be less and less these big mega projects and more and more this hugely distributed memory driveway. We have traditionally given... Um, Governments, low interest financing, preferential financing to infrastructure projects because they were in the interest of the nation. I'm really just making the argument that it is now in the interest of the nation, all nations, to invest in demand side or residential infrastructure. See those right. electric vehicles as natural energy, national energy infrastructure. See those rooftop solar as national energy infrastructure and give them the same preferential financing that you do to... Um, <clears throat> other energy projects and then you know the ultimate version of this has interesting precedent right so um henry ford was a little bit religious so he didn't believe in usury or charging interest rates so you couldn't buy a ford motor vehicle until you got until you paid it all off essentially they're all bought on lay-by Alfred P. Sloan invented auto financing in the 1920s for General Motors and General Motors went from a small market share to the majority of market share because all of a sudden everyone could have, who wanted a car could afford to buy one because they could get it on a loan. That was hugely transformative to people being able to afford cars. In the 1930s during the Great Depression, most of the people who are out, a lot of the people who are out of work were out of work in the construction industry and Roosevelt had to figure out a way to get money back into the construction industry regionally so that people could be um, employed building houses again. People were not borrowing money from local banks. Um, so what they did is they invented Fannie Mae and they created the government-backed mortgage and they used the model of Alfred P. Sloan's car loans in some respects to create this financial product so people could afford these homes. That created the largest capital market in human history still today is the American mortgage market. It's, it's, it's dwarfs everything else in terms of total amount of capital. So in essence, that was a declaration that American 
households were national infrastructure and qualified for a special government-backed interest rate. All I'm really arguing here is if we, if we move the levers of policy and regulation, a lot of that should be about our policy and regulations around financing. Let's recognize all of these vehicles and homes as infrastructure. Let's have the government step in with preferential, low interest, easy financing for everyone at, at the purchase of every one of these machines so that we can get to zero emissions on time. Mm. And, you know, an easy way to say it is like roughly half of people can afford to get a mortgage and have a good credit rating. The other half can't, can't solve climate change if only half the people can afford it. Yeah. So well, you're going mean, to have to figure out how to do that. There's an easy analogy in Australia, Sol, which I would think of as the HEX system, which is the higher education contribution scheme where uh, in Australia, if you want to go to university and you can't afford to, uh, we don't anymore have fully funded tertiary education by the government, but the government will pay your university fees uh, and will give you a zero interest loan, not perfectly zero, it's pegged to inflation, but nonetheless functionally zero in terms of its purchasing power and you don't have to pay it pay it off unless you earn more than basically the average income at least that's what it was i think it's gone down a little bit by now by now but when i was uh, going through uni uh, once you started earning more than the average income then they would then the tax office would just take a slightly higher chunk of tax going up a sliding scale depending on how much you earned uh, and that's how you would pay it off there's no credit check you don't have to be reliable uh, if you go on to live a life of uh, of poverty then you'll never pay it back and that's fine the government's got your back but if you do start earning you know decent money then the government takes back its share interest free why couldn't you have that system for changing a gas water heater to a heat pump water heater for installing rooftop solar for changing your gas stove to an electric induction stovetop and for buying an electric car that's a bloody great idea. We could do that. And that, that, that gives me an enormous amount of optimism. <laughs> uh, see, I just came up with that. So I don't know if you've thought about this before, but. No, no, but like, that's, that's genius. That's me, kid. Because I've got all the ideas. I'm just saying, you might want to. You know, I, I actually, I, I just quickly punched some numbers on that. You know what? It actually wouldn't cost the country any money. Really? Is that a fact? Well, I just current, currently in Australia, we're, we're importing 30 or $40 billion of oil a year, but I just did the numbers on Australian households. And if they were not buying petrol and diesel for the cars and they were running electric cars, at least some of it powered by their rooftop solar, we'd be saving 30 or $40 billion a year. Mm. So actually underwriting this saves the whole country money. So if I was a government, I could look at this not as a cost and I could shout down those right-wing people who keep telling me solving climate change costs too much, who are basing it on dodgy Milton Friedman economics of the mid-20th century, and we could base it on a remarkably 21st century idea that this is the infrastructure that the nation can invest in. It will be revenue neutral, or in fact, it will return net money to the government on a 10-year time frame, which is the time frame that governments can think about money. This is fantastic. See, I come up with so many good ideas. Uh, you just have to, just have to listen to me, Saul. Mate, I'm, uh, you, 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 you're for prime minister and president. Yeah, I, I, I love it. Um, look, I'm going to let you go. There's a whole, the whole other side of this question is about power generation. And there will still be some people who are thinking, uh, yeah, but don't you need baseload 
power that's going to need to come from when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow and what is that going to be and can we go 100% renewable or is that going to cost more money to generate the power that we can't generate locally at home and what role might micronuclear reactors play at a community level and all of that, which we now don't have time to get into. But do you want to... Oh, I love all of those conversations. In short, on that? In short, in a... Yeah, sure. Um, you... Baseload in it, electricity is not the problem and it's a misnomer, right? The difficult thing about electricity is the peaks. So even if you had baseload nuclear, it doesn't solve the problem that everyone turns their air conditioner on at 6 p.m. because you can't dial up and down nuclear power plants that quickly. They, they're not... They're, they're fragile. Right. So you still have to have all the same batteries in the system you do anyway. Um, so that's just to disavow people of this notion that base load is the problem. It's actually reactive load. Can't they both be the problem? Because if you, even if you don't have a high demand and you're not all turning your air conditioners on at 6 p.m., if, they're, if you're fully renewable and there's no nothing generating that renewable energy, then you're still in a problem, right? You don't, you need the, a, a minimum baseload reliability. It's, that turns out it's, it's always windy somewhere and it's, it's always sunny somewhere. And so a lot of this is solved by the geographic averaging, right? If you're, if you're relying on one wind turbine at the top of your hill, you're in trouble. But if you're right. relying on the 80,000 windmills spread out all over Australia, you're in good shape. Okay. There's also, we're going, we're not going to create exactly 100%. The idea of getting to 100% has put people off the scent here. The current fossil fuel system is two or three or 400%, right? There's a huge amount of redundancy and oversupply and overcapacity, and that's necessary to make a robust system. We will have similarly huge amounts of wind and solar, more than the 100% required because it's going to be so cheap. And at two cents a kilowatt hour to install industrial solar, installing 25% more than you need only costs you, makes the cost of that go to two and a half cents, right? And remember, that's the tiniest fraction of your electricity bill of 30 cents a kilowatt hour. Mm. So having a whole lot more than you need, so if there's a bit of cloud cover, you've still got plenty of headroom. Um, the wind dies a little, you've still got plenty of headroom. That overcapacity goes a huge way to getting you to reliable all the time. And remember that all of our hydroelectricity will start to be used as the buffer in the battery. And it's a pretty big battery as well. So in Australia, you can you don't need to intone nuclear. Basically, just well-managed, a little bit of oversupply of wind and solar and well-managed hydro, plus all of the batteries in our vehicles and homes well-managed, and, and we can do it. In the US, in the middle of winter, it might be a little bit harder, so they might need some nuclear. They've already got, you know, 20% of that electricity already comes from nuclear. They can, they could continue to do that. Um, America also could go without nuclear. Um, uh, Asia, however, you know, I don't think you can really squint at Northern Europe or China and figure out how to get them to zero emissions without, without some nuclear. Yeah. Or a lot of, um, less. So, um, you know, I'm not anti-nuclear. I'm not pro-nuclear. I, I think you have to be realistic. We have only built one nuclear power plant in the U S in the last 40 years. So it's not going to come online in time to solve climate change in the way you think, because it takes so long to get certified and regulated. You can have another libertarian discussion about how, do we deregulate nuclear or not? That's an exciting conversation to have. Um, but, you know, nuclear is a slow moving, big bureaucratic beast. 
it's more expensive and, and it's unnecessary in most of the world to get to zero. Right. Okay. So to our Mongolian listeners, you need to deregulate your nuclear uh, because you're probably not going to get there with solar, but uh, to everyone else. Oh, the Mongolians get there with wind. They, they are oh, wind from the Mongolia. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or so it's those big, long, flat plains. Uh, yeah, right. Northern China then. Maybe you know, Korea. Big, it's big crowded cities in, in Southeast Asia and in Northern Europe that are hard. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm an optimist. You've converted me. Thank you for explaining it to us. Uh, and, uh, and good luck. Where can people find out more? So there's rewiring Australia, there's rewiring America and, uh, I guess your books. There's the books, a big switch in Australia, um, electrify in the U S uh, I'm on a lot of podcasts. Um, none as good yeah. as this one, obviously, Josh, right. but you know, if, if you, if you want more, you can go and listen to some more podcasts. Fantastic. Thank you, Saul. All right. Cheers, mate.